Well, Genesis chapter 2 is our sermon passage this morning. We're back here again on part two of this message on work, good work, I called it. In the series, if you're just joining us for the first time, this series called It Is Good, and we're just looking back at the beginning um, of creation when God created the world, and it said that everything he, he created was good. Um, and then, of course, sin entered the picture and spoiled it uh, all, or uh, twisted it all, damaged it all. But we look back and see, get a glimpse of the good world that he created, knowing that he has in view the restoration of all things. And so we're instructed by that to know how shall we live in a way that we might expect his blessing and expect uh, good fruits from our labors. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5 through 15 together again. And I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand and honor the reading of God's word. And let's listen attentively to his voice. As he speaks through the scriptures. Hear the word of the Lord. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Syria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord, took, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we open your word as, uh, as we always do with the expectation that you have something to say to us in it. We know that it is your word, every jot and tittle of it. We know that your spirit gives life and light to it. And we know, God, that we have need always for it to be life and light and truth to us. So, God, we open our hearts, our minds, our ears. We are paying attention, Lord, and we ask that you would speak your word, by your spirit, through your servant, 
to your people for your glory. God, move me out of the way. Use my voice as your instrument today for Christ's sake. Amen. And you may be seated. There's a political economist named Nicholas Eberstadt who wrote a book a few years ago called Men Without Work. He had really based it on an analysis of data from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. But he wrote this book about, with a, a particular interest in, out of that data, the employment rates of prime-aged men, as he called it. Prime-aged men are those 25, age 25 to 54 by this measure by the Bureau of uh, Labor and Statistics, or Bureau of Labor Statistics. Looking at the employment rate of prime-age men, that is, what percentage of prime-age men are in the workforce? And what he observed was, he actually observed a whole lot, uh, but if you look at the employment rate for prime-age men, he, he did this, he wrote his, the, this first book in 2015. He updated it after COVID. But he said, if you look at the uh, employment rate of prime age men, it is lower than it was in 1940 at the tail end of the Great Depression. Um, he said, if you look at the 21st century as a whole and compare it to that time in history, it is substantially lower than it was in 1950. For every man who is out of work and looking for a job, I'll pause right there and point out what some of you know, when you hear the unemployment rate, um, it's speaking of the people who are out of work but looking for work. They're actively looking for work. So in other words, it's, it's an attempt to measure the joblessness rate in the, in the economy. People who want a job but can't find one uh, that's what unemployment measures, measures uh, out of work but looking for work. He says, for every man who is out of work and looking for a job, there are four who are neither working nor looking for work. I don't know if you've tracked that. For, for, every, per, for every prime age man out of work, that, in other words, that they, their situation registers in the unemployment statistics. For every one of those... There are four um, out of work and not looking for work. And most of them haven't, been, haven't worked, according to this uh, data on Bureau of Labor Statistics, they haven't worked in the last year. What was maybe the most interesting thing for me to read about that is this employment rate uh, called the labor participation rate. Actually, It's actually been declining almost in a straight line since around 1965. Well, those statistics I share as sort of a snapshot. He is particularly interested, by the way, in the employment rates of prime-aged men because uh, the, the, the rate at which men are working predicts um, something about the future health of the economy. In fact, the subtitle of his book was America's Invisible Crisis. 
In fact, this will tie into other messages in this series because what part of the correlation there is that uh, young men are marrying at lower rates, having children at lower rates, and working at lower rates. And those three are almost certainly related to each other. In the sense that uh, men historically work harder and steadfastly when they have a family to support than they uh, will when they do not. Again, that'll tie into future lessons, uh, messages. The reason I mentioned that, start with that, is to say those statistics would be one little snapshot that uh, supports the claim I made last week that we need a new vision of work, a renewed vision of work. We need to, we need to think about work differently, perhaps. Because if we've thought of it as simply a necessary evil, um, then we might get to the place where, as an increasing number of young men have, uh, have gotten to the place where they, they've worked out some arrangement where they don't have to work, so they don't. Right? I mean, so in other words, if you think of work as just something I have to do but wish I didn't have to do, then if I can work out a way where I don't have to do it, I won't. And the honest truth is many of us can relate to that. Yes, sign me up for that gig, some of you might say. But we, the Bible offers us a different vision of work. And so we've kind of been uncovering over the last few weeks out of Genesis uh, 1 and 2, that God created humans in his image and gave them a purpose right away. He made man in his image and he spoke to them and gave them a purpose. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and then subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. I said that's referred to sometimes as the cultural commission or the first commission. But they were to represent God on the earth. The presence of humans and their activity on the earth was to reveal something, represent something about the presence of God. And along with that first commission, or even as part of it, God gave man work to do. So you may remember, if you were here last week, work was part of God's good design. Before sin, before the fall, he gave man work to do. And even said that, or implied uh, in you know, the beginnings of the passage we just read, that there was potential that the earth had. God had made it in such a way where it could produce more through the activity of man than it would just by itself. There wasn't anything wrong with it. It wasn't deficient in any way, but God designed it in a way that the work of men would bring forth fruitfulness of the earth that it had the potential to produce but that it wouldn't without the interaction of man. And so it, it was a good part of God's creation. It wasn't a necessary evil. It wasn't punishment. So we might say uh, before the fall, before that original sin, you would never have heard Adam say, well, you know, work is just what I have to do to earn a living. But my real purpose in life is dot, 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 family or worship or whatever the case may be. There would have been no disjunction, no disconnection between those two. They were totally integrated 
Work was an integral part of the life for which Adam was created, such that work itself, I suggested last week, work itself was an expression of worship. All that he did, not unlike what we read in Romans chapter 12, all of him and all that he did uh, was submitted to God as worship. All his work was work for sure, but it was also worship, it was also service, and of course had an element of stewardship to it as well. But I said last week that I wanted to kind of this week, put feet on that, so to speak. Uh, how do we walk that out in real life? So given those principles of uh, a, a, a different frame of reference for thinking about work, then how do we actually uh, begin to walk that out in the workplace? And that's kind of my purpose this morning. And I wanted to give us another, uh, some language and kind of a, a, a word picture to attach to this that I think is helpful and I hope you'll find it to be. But there's this woman named Amy Sherman who wrote a book called Kingdom Calling. Uh, it's one of many on this subject of thinking about work as calling, vocation, all of that being done to the glory of God. But here's one of the statements she made in her book. Our gracious Heavenly Father desires us to deploy our time, talents, and treasure to offer others foretastes of the coming kingdom. Okay. Deploy our time, talents, and treasure to offer others foretastes of the coming kingdom. I thought of as sort of a picture of this, uh, again, sort of an illustration of this, the food court at the mall. I haven't been to the food court at the mall actually in quite some time, but I used to uh, if I had to go to the mall, which has never been a leisure activity for me, but if I had to go to the mall, uh, I would want to pass through the food court and walk past the person out there handing out little samples of chicken. <laughs> right? You know, the, the, whatever the, you know, whatever the, the Asian grill was, you know, the teriyaki chicken or whatever the kind of chicken was. You know the one, right? You've seen it with the platter, the toothpicks or whatever. Walk by and I think I have one of those. I'll turn and see what it tastes like going in the other direction. Let me come back there, have another one of those. But a foretaste of teriyaki chicken. A, fo a foretaste of the whole meal. You know, we make a whole lot more where this came from. That's the idea. But see, uh, just post it out there, just post it out there, offering a foretaste. I thought of that as really a, a very helpful picture of what Amy Sherman suggests, and I think she's on to something. This says, for those of us who are believers whose lives have been redeemed by Christ and, and, and belong entirely to him, our work is redeemed along with it, such that in the place that God has sent us to do, and we might, we might extend the, the, the metaphor a little bit by saying, imagine that uh, the, the, the Asian girl sends out a whole team of, uh, you know, an army of people with platters that scatter all over the mall just offering foretastes 
And again, that's just sort of the picture for us that um, wherever it is we're planted and what, with whatever it is God has given us to offer, we, we just look, notice other people. We're there, our presence and the, you know, what we do and the way we do it, the way we conduct ourselves is all offered as foretastes of the kingdom. And so uh, we think about our work through those lenses. We might think of several just practical principles for applying that. And I want to offer six of them here, and I'm going to motor through them pretty quickly. But uh, number one, start right where you are. Start right where you are. Whatever work it is you do, if it's legitimate, if it's legal, if it's moral, uh, start right where you are. If it's not, stop today. <laughs> we'll have a response time at the end of the service. You can come uh, right where you're seated. You can ask God to deal with that. But anyway, as the saying uh, goes, bloom where you're planted. And so where, wherever it is, God has placed you where you are. You don't have to change to some other place in order for that work to be done by you as worship to him, but also just offered to others as foretaste of the kingdom. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 24 uh, really speaks of something more generally than this, but there's a principle here which intersects with it. He says, Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the, uh, in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he was free when he was called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, the principle I just want to observe here is he's, he's just saying, okay, your circumstance, your station in life doesn't have to change because you're a Christian or in order to live as a Christian. That's what he's communicating here. If you are a bondservant, you, you can remain a bondservant and live as a faithful Christian right there in that setting. But if you're, if you're able to secure your freedom, do. You notice that in parentheses. He's not saying that there, uh, there cannot be change for the better, but you don't need change for the better in order to have a Christian presence right where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Start right where you are. Even if you have a view towards something better or different and more fitting in whatever kind of way, start where you are, right where you are. Number two, Work like Jesus is your boss. There are probably better ways of saying this. In fact, it would be as, in some ways, a better image if we said, uh, you know, picture yourself as a servant in the king's house. Uh, that that in, you work for the king in every respect, right? Everything you do is for him. You are his servant. And in some ways, you serve him directly, and in other ways, you serve friends and family of the king, right? Those who, who come before him. That might be, again, a, a, a helpful picture, but in practical terms, because, you know, when we're actually at work, we're just in the grind, 
And sometimes it is a grind. But work like Jesus is your boss. So Colossians 3, 22 through 25, Paul says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. If that verse isn't highlighted or underlined, you might want to do so today. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. In both 1 Corinthians 7 and Colossians 3 here where he's speaking to bond servants. You get the hint that, if you didn't know the history. That being a bond servant was, uh, was a tough station in life. I mean, there were times and places in, in Roman culture where they were, slaves were treated with the worst kind of indignity that, that we could probably conceive of. Uh, and, and, and maybe it, it could be worse than that in terms of being tortured or brutalized, and that wouldn't have been commonplace for them, but treated with just utter indignity. And again, so what, what Paul is saying to the church of Colossae is for, for, the, for the master who is unjust, the wrongdoer, he will be paid back. That's how that passage ends. There's no partiality. But uh, you don't have to have a just, kind, fair master in order to live obediently right where you are. And so do your work as unto the Lord and not as unto men. That's the message He's sending here, work like Jesus is the one writing your evaluation. I mean, there's somebody else who obviously supervises you in most cases if you are employed somewhere. But work as if Jesus is the one who cares most about your performance. He's the one who will evaluate it. And he cares not only about the typical performance measures that might go into your normal evaluation, but he sees and cares about all the sort of intangibles as well, all the conversations you have with people directly or indirectly related to your work, all of those interactions, all the ways you represent him in your work and in the workplace. He is the one you serve. So work as if he's the one writing your evaluation and work even, depending on what you do, uh, work like Jesus is the customer you're serving, that he's the direct recipient of the service you provide. I thought of this uh, a, a sort of personal memory of mine um, uh, just really quickly back when I was working as a head of a school in Virginia. We were growing rapidly. We had added a second campus and it was in a brand new building that another church had built and they had opened up to us for use in the school. So I was terribly self-conscious about the condition of that building. You know, it was, everything was new. There were no scuffs on the wall, no scuffs on the floor. Everything was just beautiful and shiny. And so when we first got in that building, we hadn't really worked out a good cleaning arrangement yet. I had a guy that I hired and he didn't work out and I had to let him go. And so... I didn't have that day, the next day, anybody to replace him. So I was the cleaner. 
And for a period of time, I mean, it was, I don't know, uh, maybe a couple of weeks that I did that, but um, I already had plenty to do, by the way, if you uh, wouldn't have imagined that. But, but my, my point is, I remember um, sort of instructing myself or, or, or motivating myself uh, when I was in there cleaning toilets. These are the king's toilets. Yeah? I'm going to put a spit shine on these things like a nice pair of patent leather shoes. Make them pop. But the, but, but the, the point is there, I mean, you know, work as if uh, the, the Lord is being served even directly, not just that he's your boss, but that he's being served directly by the work that you're doing. Work for him and not for men. That's number two. Number three, how do we offer, how do we do our work in such a way where we offer it and ourselves, offer to others foretaste of the kingdom? Well, use well the ability that God has given you, the talent, skills, and so forth. Don't neglect your talent. This is real basic, and you don't have to be a Christian, by the way, to know this or to do it, right? But it, it really is... It, it needs to be said because God has designed us um, as he saw fit. And there is a sense in which there's, a, there's a, a stewardship element to the work we do. You remember the two words in Genesis 2.15 were work and keep it. There's a guarding, protecting, taking care of what he's given us charge over, including the capacities he's given us personally. So use those well. You remember again the quote from Eric Little I shared um, in an earlier message from that, that scene in Chariots of Fire. The, if you don't remember that one, you can go back and listen to that message uh, from a few weeks ago. But the, the Scottish runner who was also a missionary who was going to run in the Olympics. And you remember that quote where he said, I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. That quote actually captures so much of what pertains to this message in particular. Because it says he is, God is, God made me fast. And when I, when I run, I feel his pleasure. There's just something I feel about the joy of God when I just use fully what he gave me. And so it's not just fun to win, not just to compete. To win is to honor him because I can, because he made me that fast. And so part of what this point would have us to do is evaluate what is it that God has fashioned in me and embrace that and use it well. Don't neglect it. To, to do so would be to hold him in contempt. And this is something that most of us wrestle with at some point in our lives. Wanting the talents that somebody else has. Wishing there were, you know, we were more like so-and-so in whatever way. But don't, don't go there to neglect what he's fashioned in you would be to hold him in contempt. And so you might say, yeah, God made me for a purpose, 
but he also made me analytical. And when I make spreadsheets, I feel his pleasure. <laughs> and you fill in the blank with whatever, with whatever it might be, but the point is um, that in the whole big picture of all of the intricacies of you know, the way societies are ordered and all that kind of stuff and billions of people on the planet, you and I make a contribution to that. So he sends us out with our little tray of chicken. Or maybe you get the, the grilled vegetable tray. You go, really, vegetables? Nobody wants vegetables. Well, go down to the, you know, go stand in front of the health food store because there's people there who don't eat meat. And uh, there, is a, there is a segment of the population that will be served by what it is you have to offer. And that's really the point. Use well what he's given you. Offer it. Contribute it. And to the point of my prayer earlier, you know, there are people who work for the hospital as an example, who do the important work of saving lives. And so there are those nurses in and out of hospital rooms, doctors doing surgeries and critical care, techs and so forth, but there are also support staff of a whole variety of ways, including like computer programmers. I, I don't want a computer programmer coming and changing my IV, but I am so glad that somebody is assure, ensuring that that technology works in a way so that the best care can be delivered to me by those who deliver it on the front lines. You get the picture? And so it, it, whatever that is, God is, the ability God's given you, use it well. You may need to take an inventory of your talent. That may be, a, of your talent, me, sorry. Uh, that may be an exercise that, that you may need to uh, go through and you kind of know what you're going to find there, but it may just be for some people, you're at a place where you just need to pause and reflect and go, what really is, is it that God has fashioned in me? What am I using what have I not been using? What do I find pleasure in? And what, well, what do I do where I sense the very pleasure of God? But don't try to talk yourself into believing you're good at something that you know you're not or that you will find fulfillment in something that's never been fulfilling. We don't always have the privilege of, of being able to do the, the job we wish we had. It's, I'm not suggesting that. But I'm just saying to the extent that we can offer to the world what it is that God has given us to be stewards over. Discover that and then offer that faithfully. Use it well. Number four, we can offer foretaste of the kingdom by operating with integrity. God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. He is holy. There, there, is, there is no unrighteousness in him. He is not uh, double-minded. He doesn't have bad moods and so on. He is whole. In, uh, it, that's really where the word uh, integrity comes from. It's sort of oneness or wholeness. Operate with integrity. Aim to do the right thing all the time. 
You know that you'll fail at that sometimes, as will I. But aim to do the right thing all the time, not what appears to be easiest or most expedient, the path of least resistance or something that avoids conflict. Do the right thing all the time. Don't bill people for work that you didn't do. You know, don't submit a time card that says you worked 40 hardworking hours when you worked 25 half-hearted hours. Don't, don't bill people for what you didn't do. If you messed up, own up. Don't cover up. Don't try to cover your mistake and pass it off on somebody else. We can't go wrong when we always strive to know the will of God and to do it. Proverbs 10.9 says, He who walks in integrity walks securely. And let me tell you what you know and what I certainly know to be true from experience. That does not mean it'll always turn out good tomorrow. And it works that way in fairy tales. It does not work that way in real life. The right, doing the right thing does not always mean that you're going to be better off tomorrow than the guy who cheated. It doesn't mean that. But I tell you what it does mean is that God will honor the faithfulness and the righteousness and the integrity of his people. And you'll find in the long term that always pays off better than cheating and shortcutting in the short term. Number five, produce excellent work. One of the ways that we can uh, offer foretastes of his kingdom is just doing excellent work. And I'm not going to really belabor this point in a message a few weeks ago again I talked about it's one of the ways um, in which we essentially reflect God's image on the earth because as as his image bearers and we look at what did he do in the beginning what did he reveal about himself in the beginning we can sort of imitate that well he he made all things good he made all things good everything he created was good, and we ought to strive as those who were made in His image uh, to do the same in everything we put our hand to. If you look in the at, at the pictures given to us in Revelation twenty-one of the new heaven and the new earth, it is beautiful and it is excellent. You know, it describes the walls made of jewels, and you know, uh, uh, you know the gates of precious stones and all this kind of stuff. You know what? There are no rusty hinges on the gates of the new earth, right? There's, there's, it's all excellently done. Um, there, are, there are no parts on there where somebody went to Home Depot and got the wrong one and just beat it into place to make it, well, that be good enough. None of that, right? It's all extravagantly beautiful, excellent, and so strive to produce excellent work. That's one of the ways, again, it's a, that's not easy, but it's simple in the sense that um, it doesn't take a, a genius to understand that. Again, it doesn't even have a, take a, you don't have to be a Christian to understand that, but it ought to be incumbent upon a Christian even more so than others to be excellent in our work because he is. Finally, number six, Treat people with dignity, love, and respect. 
all people, I should say. Um, I know that's not, that's more easily said than done, right? To always treat people with dignity and love and respect. Some people are hard to love. Some people won't stop being nasty long enough for you to be kind to them. Right? Some people just rub you the wrong way. It's just, the, it's just the kind of personality that, you know, oil and water with you. Like, I get all of those are realities. But I'm just saying, treat all pe- people with dignity, love, and respect. Because um, in, your, in your work environment, you, you routinely come into contact. You have certain relationships with people by design. But then you have relationships with all kinds of other people or interactions with other people um, a little bit more organically or in unplanned ways. All those people you come into contact with, treat them with dignity, love, and respect as image bearers of God. Some of them as sheep who belong in the fold of Jesus and don't know it yet. But it goes beyond just being polite and agreeable. It goes beyond just treating people well because it's in your best interest to do so. That's true in business sometimes too, right? Like I I don't... You know, if I'm a business owner, I want to treat everybody like their friends and family because I, I want them to come back and buy something next week or whatever the case is. It serves my own interest to do that. But even when it doesn't, treat people with great dignity. I, I'm going to share an illustration here that, that maybe it gives you one little story that will even shift your shift paradigms in this regard because the truth is, there are many ways in which the, the sort of uh, the, 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 the guidelines, the, the way, the rules of the workplace, we learn from the workplace. How far do we go? What, what, it, what are the dynamics of our relationships with other people? Who are the people we punch in the nose and who are the, who are the people we shake hands with? And, and we really learn a lot from the work environment itself rather than being transformed by the renewing of our mind and bring a whole different way of thinking into the workplace. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Is to, is to, to give people that we work with a glimpse of a whole different way of living. A kingdom that awaits us. But here's an example of really going to an extent that most people probably wouldn't. This author I mentioned earlier, Amy Sherman tells a story about a man from Oklahoma City whose business faced an economic downturn. This was actually back in the mid-80s. But uh, it threatened a lot of jobs. I mean, it was one of those situations where people were being laid off, losing jobs all over the country. Um, In his case, as a smaller business, they had built up a reserve fund to help carry the company through such times. And so he worked with the mayor of Oklahoma City over a period of about two and a half months to find places where workers were needed around Oklahoma City, in other businesses where there was work to be found, even in nonprofits where there was work to be found. Because work dried up in his business just like it did other places. But rather than laying employees off, he looked for other work for them where they could be productive in that period of time and found work for 92 employees. Some working minimum wage, some not getting paid at all. 
and he paid the difference in their pay so that they continued to earn what uh, they earned at his place of employment even though he didn't have work for them to do during that period of time. He paid the difference in their pay, saw them through a period of 18 months of recession more or less until finally uh, things were back on their feet and they were all able to come back to work. Now that's extraordinary, isn't it? It's not unique to him though, to uh, business owners like that who go, you know what, I am just my attention, my, my, my thoughts, my beliefs are just arrested by what the word of God says. If this is true, then I must do that. Treating people with profound dignity and respect. And that's, that's what gives people a foretaste of the kingdom some little glimpse of how extraordinary is the love of God for us. What, the extent of the dignity we possess, possess just because we're created in his image and so on. One of the most significant ways that we can give people a foretaste of the kingdom is treating them with dignity, love, and respect. And I would say... Um, you know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, it, but it's honest, too. I mean, for somebody who professes to be Christian and yet does the very opposite of that, who treats people with indignity and disrespect and unkindness and so forth, I would say we are all better off if you don't let them know you're Christian. I, I mean, don't, don't put your Bible out on your desk and a cross hanging on the wall if you are going to treat people You got it? But because people are so accustomed to being treated badly by other people, because people are so used to living in a dog-eat-dog world and so on, uh, the contrast that a believer can bring to the workplace by treating people with profound dignity um, is hard to measure. Well, we're going to conclude again just by praying this prayer together that we prayed last week. It comes out of the Book of Common Prayer. This uh, nighttime, sort of bedtime, close of the day prayer that just acknowledges the contribution that everybody makes to our common good. In fact, that's the subtitle of this woman's book that I've quoted a couple of times here, Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good thinking of our work as a kingdom calling and its vocational stewardship for the common good. Those are a lot of helpful words um, to hang your thoughts about work on. But let's close with this prayer together. Oh God, your unfailing providence sustains the world we live in and the life we live. Watch over those both night and day who work while others sleep and grant that we may never forget that our common life depends upon each other's toil through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you bow with me? Well, Father, that is...
our prayer and we're thankful, God. We're thankful for the way you have just designed the world to live that we depend upon one another. And so God, we pray that you would just give us a new vision for our place in that, the work that we do, that through the very work itself and the way we do it and all of the other informal interactions we have with people that we might offer foretastes of a coming kingdom. That the goodness of your love and the abiding peace that will be offered for eternity, Lord, would you teach us how we can offer a measure of that to those with whom we work and live and play. In Christ's name, amen.